Welcome to the Nomberg Law Live podcast. Each week we try to bring interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And my guest this week is Michael Osaki, who is a recognized appraiser and authenticator in the collectibles world. Michael has tons of experience and so much knowledge, and I was just so glad to be able to catch up with him to get some input about his thoughts about why and how the collectibles hobbies and industry has exploded over this past 12 months. If collecting cards or memorabilia is your thing, you're going to love this episode. Thank you again for taking a, an interest in Nomberg Law Live podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review and subscribing will ensure that you get each podcast as they come out on a weekly basis. Thank you again. up to an hour okay all right guys we're now live for another weekly episode of nomberg law live as we do each tuesday we try to bring interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise and my guest today is michael osaki with baseball in the attic good, good morning michael thank you for joining us good morning happy to be here well i've been looking forward to this discussion for quite a while and people okay hold on just a second okay now we're good uh, I've been looking forward to our conversation for quite a while because people who know me know that I've jumped back into the sports card hobby about two years ago and have just fallen in love with it all over again. And I've tried to um, corral my enthusiasm so that I'm not just, oh, I got to have that. I want that. I want that. I'm trying to focus uh, my collecting uh, largely due to the fact that I only have X dollars to be able to spend on it each time. But guys, we brought Michael, who is a certified uh, lead uh, appraiser uh, with and deals with PSA, and we'll get into PSA in just a minute. Michael has spoken to you name the the magazine or the financial um, leaders about the hobby over the years, and I'll put a link to Michael's website uh, on in our show notes. But Michael, share just a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get started. Well, I got started in 1997 when my grandfather got me a shoebox of old baseball cards for my birthday. And it got me on the hunt of not only trying to find more of them, but also understand the values. Why, if I have two of the same baseball cards, why is one worth 10 bucks and one could be worth a thousand bucks? And I started to understand it was about condition, the corners, the centering, are there any print defects? Are there any gum stains on the back? And that was really interesting to me. And then I also realized that uh, there was a gap in the marketplace for an appraiser like myself, whereas I could go to a card show and there might be 100 or 200 dealers buying and selling their cards or autographs, but there was no independent party that was actually doing the appraising. The dealers were kind of uh, acting in a conflict of interest. They were buying, they were selling, they were appraising, and that didn't make sense to me. Um, and so uh, that kind—that was like the aha moment a couple of decades ago, and here I am today. Well, it's when I stopped collecting uh, is when I guess I just had a shift in, in life priorities. I always have loved the sport of baseball and all sports, but I stopped collecting in the early 90s. And I think that that predated 
grading of cards. Everything was, was as we know, is raw, ungraded. And you would look at it and you would say, oh, that looks, that looks mint or near mint, or that looks pretty good or fair or poor. And it was really very subjective. And you could go into your card shop, your local card store, and you could haggle a little bit, but then the, the card store owner would say, all right, here's my, my bottom line. Well, when did grading of cards, slabbing them, if you will, when did all that begin? And how did that change the hobby to really to where we've come full circle today? Well, PSA started in 1991. So believe it or not, 30 years ago. But uh, I would argue that it didn't become commonplace until the late 90s and early 2000s. And they played and still do play a very important role um, because kind of like you were alluding to, everybody thinks what they have is mint condition, a perfect 10. And that's almost never the case. The reason why you see like on CNN or the Wall Street Journal or wherever, a PSA 10 sells for a million bucks is because there might only be one of them in the entire world or two of them in the entire world. And most likely what you have is not one of them. Um, I send a lot of cards and autographs to PSA every week because I am also an authorized submitter. Um, and 99% of the people, before they even send me the cards, will tell me that their cards are in condition. Um, so I have to kind of, you know, talk them off the ledge and help them understand why uh, this 86 Fleer Michael Jordan is not a PSA 10, which a PSA 10 right now is, let's say, $575,000, but a PSA 8 is $15,000. And to the naked eye, a lot of people cannot tell the difference between an 8, 9, and a 10. So, uh, but PSA, you know, is great. They bring buyers and sellers together. Everybody knows exactly what a PSA 5 is or what a PSA 8 is and what the current market value should be. Well, it, you're right. It takes, it takes that sentimental approach out of your collectibles and maybe it's that card was given to you as a gift or it takes you back to a certain time but you overlook the average collector oh i think i've got a a gem mint 10 card here and in reality there's some scrapes or the corners a little loved uh etc but but it, you're right it when i go to card shows and i've gone to a couple of shows this year and i still see the majority of the cards are uh, raw, un ungraded, seeing more and more slabbed cards, graded cards, but there has been, um, I guess, I don't know if the word is explosion. During the pandemic, the hobby really has just taken off like gangbusters. Kind of address that just a little bit, and then I'm going to come back to my example of what I was talking about with card shows. Yeah, so during the pandemic, uh, well, in the past 12 months, the market has exploded higher, unlike anything we've ever seen before or the hobbies ever seen before. When the pandemic was first starting in early March of last year, I was in New York City in Manhattan for the entire week. And I remember vividly each day as I would go outside and walk around, I would be stopped at a stoplight waiting for it to turn green. People were on their phones, you know, talking to their parents or coworkers. They were scared. They didn't know what was going on. Things were shutting down. I would jump in an Uber. I remember the woman 
uh, next to me. She was the director of the Brooklyn Library and her boss said everything must be shut down for the rest of the week starting tonight. Um, and myself, I was wondering if I was going to be out of a job or you know what the demand was going to be for my services. Now, fast forward 12 months, here we are today. I cannot think of a single business or industry that benefited more than our industry, but the collecting. And there's several reasons for it. Um, people could not go out and spend their money on restaurants or leisure uh, activities, travel. They were spending money on baseball cards or sports memorabilia. They were going on to eBay. Then over the summer, you had stimulus checks from the government. And again, people were putting money into the hobby. Then you also had athletes and celebrities on Instagram and social media that were taking photos and sharing it with their friends. You had world record sales seemingly every single weekend. And these were million dollar sales. Um, and that drew worldwide attention. Um, and here we are today, PSA now has over 10 million cards and backlog. And the demand for the services had never been higher. Uh, last month, PSA was acquired for $853 million. There is just such demand for the service, whether it's getting their cards graded, getting the autographs authenticated. And there is a real stickiness uh, to that demand, meaning I think as we kind of come out, out of this pandemic and kind of restart, there still will be um, demand and stickiness and interest in the hobby. Uh, long-term. And I think that's exciting. Um, but right now, um, you know, I'm just staying super, super busy as PSA is. Um, um, and it's really, really exciting. I was going to say, I bet you're as busy right now in the last several months as you may have been in the hobby uh, in the last several years because of the, the, I keep using the word explosion, but that's, that's really the, to me, the best way to describe how much popular, how, how popular things have just become. When you have Giannis uh, in the NBA, who's the two-time MVP, going on social media showing all of the purchases of his own card that he's been making, the Gary V's of the world, and all of the, the others who just have been promoting the hobby for so many months, you're right. I think all of these things have come together, but most notably, people aren't traveling. They aren't spending their money on the experiences like going to games, et cetera, they're spending it on uh, the collectibles. But one of my, my fears, and I think you and I kind of briefly talked about this in Clubhouse or been in some discussions, is whether the hobby is outpricing the everyman or the new collector or the child who wants to get involved. How, does, how do you approach that? It, it, and I know that's a huge thing to tackle but let's say that you have a, a new child who's nine years old and loves baseball and wants to collect some cards and you don't have a local card shop. You go on eBay, for example, and you see packs of cards are just ridiculous uh, in values, or not values, but costs. So what, what do you do? How do you make it available to the everyman? This is a big problem. And when I think about the long-term growth and trajectory of the hobby, we must have that generation, young kids interested um, to kind of see long-term uh, growth. And you're right. I think it's uh, ridiculous to you know, see a, a, a box of cards unopened for three or 400 or 500 bucks. 
you know, mommy or daddy can't spend that type of money. And to be honest, that's a lot and that's ridiculous. And even a pack, 15, 20 bucks, whatever it is, that's way too much. And now you're also seeing uh, vendors like um, for the baseball cards or basketball cards at Target or Walmart, um, they're being attacked. Um, people are stealing some of their wares. Um, I just got a note yesterday from a friend. I saw a vendor stocking the shelves at Walmart and he was putting some aside secretly so he could buy them. Um, but going back to your question, I think what needs to potentially happen then because people are getting priced out of some of the stuff is um, the father or mother maybe needs to show their kid or kids what they collected as a kid. So maybe something vintage that's very affordable. Maybe it's um, uh, like a, a John Doe card or something from 1964 that maybe costs two or three bucks. Mm -hmm. And on the back, you'll see the biography and where the, you know, his stats and um, maybe the, young kid or son, maybe young son or daughter will become interested in something vintage because it's more affordable mm -hmm. because the new stuff is just, uh, it's too crazy. Yeah. Um, and I, I also don't like it at all. Well, that's, uh, this is, this will kind of show you my age a little bit, but my favorite, my first set and my favorite still today is the 1975 tops, the multicolored, uh, kind of, um, I don't know how you describe it, but it's just with all those colors, we're just so vivid. But I loved looking on the back, certain players. I think if I remember correctly, they had little cartoons or little factoids about the player or somebody else in major leagues. But that was my first year. That was my first set. And that's kind of my, my sweet spot, if you will, in the hobby. So anytime I can find either the minis or the regular cards in good shape, I try to, to add to that to my collection. Well, 1975 was a great year. It was George Brett's rookie, Robin Yount, Jim Rice. But because of the colors you describe, it's very difficult to find high grades because the green or the yellow or, whatever, or the purple will, will show white. And once it does that, it'll, it'll get assigned a lower grade. No, you're, you're so right. It's so many of those other years, like 71 with the black borders, uh, show the same thing. But guys, I'm talking with Michael Osaki with Baseball in the Attic. And we're just talking about the hobby, all kind of good stuff. If you have questions or comments for Michael, just throw them in the, the comments section. Let's talk about local card shops, LCSs. And I'm, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, as you know. We have five, may, maybe five or six dedicated shops around our state. Sadly, we only have one in the metro area. Birmingham's the largest city in our population-wise in our state, but we only have one. And card shows every once in a while in the north part of our state. And I think the card shows are just the neatest thing for the hobby because it brings every, everybody together. You're able to actually see people in person and you can, you can hold the cards as opposed to just looking online on eBay or Instagram. But let's talk about card shops. In the 80s, when I was a kid, they were everywhere. But with, I guess, I don't know if it was the junk wax era or the whatever happened. I know you're a better historian than I, but they seem to have largely have gone away. But are they now making somewhat of a comeback? The local card shows were extremely popular in the 1990s um, for many reasons. But then what happened was in 1995, eBay started. Mm -hmm. And not just eBay, but the entire internet was really blossoming. And so what you could do then, let's say you were collecting a 1975 Topps baseball card set 
and you were missing 37 cards from that set. Well, up until eBay, you had to go to the local card show or card shop and find those 37 cards. Mm-hmm. But with eBay, you could wake up in the morning, you could not brush your teeth, be in your pajamas, and just type a couple things onto eBay, find those cards, they would be shipped, and in five days, you would get the cards back. So um, it really destroyed the business model of card shows. Um, now, here we are today where the, you know, so the hobby is just exploding as we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of vacant retail storefronts as a lot of retailers, unfortunately, went out of business in the last 12 months. And landlords are trying to just get anybody in um, at a discounted rate. And so I do think you're going to start seeing some new local card shops pop up. And I think that's good. I think that the, the entrepreneurs who are trying to open up these new card shops skew a little bit younger. A lot of times the local card shops um, in your town that have been around for decades mm-hmm. um, are not innovating. The owner has been there for 30, 35, maybe 40 years. Yep. Um, and so it's important, as I was saying earlier, for new blood, new growth um, to kind of come in. And I think we're going to start seeing these new card shops pop up very soon. They're, they're not all going to be like the, the Goliath Burbank uh, card shop, but they can at least serve their local communities. That's absolutely, absolutely right. Let's, Michael, let's talk a little bit about insuring a collection. I know that's one of your main uh, you're an appraiser and you, you, you do such a great job around the country looking at just, I, I'm jealous that one aspect of your job is you get to see these really cool collectibles all the time. Uh, so I know, and I, I do want you to talk a little bit about why someone uh, should insure their collection, just a little bit about how that's, how, how do you do that? And then secondly, share a couple of really cool items you might've seen along the way that you may have not have, have seen in other times. Yeah, you're right. So I wake up every morning and I never know who's going to call me or who's going to email me. Um, I don't even know what I'm going to see. You know, I have appointments back to back every single day, um, but I don't know exactly what someone has. So it's always fun. And um, that's the best part of my job is not only seeing the stuff, but also meeting the people, hearing their stories. Why do they still have something? Why was something never thrown away years ago by their mother or by their father? Um, But usually people will call me in for a couple different reasons. One, insurance purposes, especially now, everything kind of 5X or 10X in the past 12 months, people had a $100,000 collection. It's not worth a million bucks. That's serious money. Mm -hmm. And they want to insure it properly. And their their insurance company will have them call me or sometimes people will actually find me on Google and they'll say, you know, I need insurance appraisal. So I'll come in for that. The other reason why people enlist my services for an appraisal will be for estate planning. Um, they have a bunch of kids or grandkids and they want to know when they die that everything will be accounted for. And this is what the value was on this date. And then lastly, I do some donation appraisals, um, especially for high net worth individuals or athletes or celebrities who um want to donate something for a tax write-off. They may have an item that's worth $150,000, but their net worth is $20 million, And so they would much rather donate it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And 
they need someone with my credentials. I'm USPAP compliant, which is what the IRS looks for to deem an appraisal worthy or not, and to make sure that that $150,000 value that I place is correct. Um, and so they'll call me in. So those really are the three reasons why people will call me in. Now back to your question about some interesting things that I've seen over the years. Um, one was Babe Ruth's last autograph that he signed on his deathbed in 1948. Wow. Uh, a gentleman and his son had it and they wanted me to appraise it. And uh, I said, it's about four or $5,000. And they said, oh, that's it. And I said, yeah. And they go, but Michael, look on the bottom right-hand corner which I did not see. Uh, and it was dated August 16th, 1948. And I literally jumped out of my chair because I knew that was the day that Babe Ruth died. He was in the hospital for a couple of months. He was sick with cancer. And I asked him, you know, how do you have this? Or I said, prove, prove to me that this is, you know, his last ever autograph because I'm kind of a healthy skeptic there. And uh, he took out a bunch of papers and uh, put them on the desk and um, basically on his wife's side of the family was a priest and that was Babe Ruth's priest. And the documentation he was showing me was going back and forth many years from, from the priest to Babe and vice versa. Babe was sick in Florida, was looking forward to getting back to Manhattan, having dinner with the priest. And I think what happened was, uh, after being in the hospital for a couple months, Babe Ruth knew that his time had come and that was the day that he thought he was going to die. And so he called his priest in and he dated it, uh, August 16th, 1948. So that was a pretty special, incredible piece. Um, you know, that, that's a story and a memory I will never, ever forget. Um, one other one is... Um, Let me ask you real quick. Does that then impact the ultimate value to that autograph as opposed to another Babe Ruth autograph that's on a baseball that doesn't have a date? So he asked me, he goes, so, so is it still four or $5,000? I said, no. I said, this is a six-figure piece for sure, but it's so unique, it's hard to actually pinpoint an exact or even a range of what it would go for. But we know that there would be some diehard Yankee and Babe Ruth collectors who would fight, fight people for this item. Um, so... Yeah, so that, that was kind of the answer I gave him when he said, you know, what's the value? And it's, uh, you know, me being an appraiser, I always like to give people a value, whether it's an exact value or a range. But for this piece, um, and, and this guy and his son uh, didn't want uh, like a formal appraisal report. He was just kind of curious on the value, like a verbal. Um, and so, yeah, so I said six figures, but he said it'll never be sold. It'll be passed down to the family. It's a family heirloom. Could you imagine in today's auctions with the crazy prices that have been going on, what that, that could be a seven figure uh, cost. Or value. Right, exactly. Because when I saw him years ago, this is before everything, you know, and I said six figures. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. So I interrupted you. You were going to tell us one more item. Oh, sure. So during the course of a year, I do a lot of speaking engagements, although with COVID I'm doing zero, but um, uh, a couple, they were, they were probably in their like maybe late seventies, early eighties. And they brought me a, so after my speaking engagement, they um, came up and talked to me and they had 
a complete 1915 Cracker Jack baseball card collection, 176 cards. There's Christy Mathewson and Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner and all these great Hall of Famers. And I went through every card. It took some time, but I did. I went through every card. I love Cracker Jacks. I love the color. Um, and over the years, I do see a lot of Cracker Jacks, which I love and I'm thankful for. But so after, you know, I, I looked at it, you know, I said, um, it's maybe, I guess it's 75 or $80,000 for the complete set. Um, but before I told them that, I said, just out of curiosity, I want you to tell me what you think this is worth. I never, and I never ask people that because people always say, oh, it's worth 10 million bucks. It's worth a hundred million bucks. It's worth a billion that, you know, some crazy high number. And so the couple said, we think it's worth, or we hope it's worth $2,000. And I said, no, not even close. And so the husband said, well, I guess maybe 500 bucks is, is, I guess is okay. And I said, well, no, you're completely off. And I told them what the value was. And the husband, he looks at me and he says, listen, you're a young punk. I don't need someone lying to me. We had a horrible week. And the last thing we need is someone to BS us about the value of our collection. Oh, wow. And uh, so I said, sir, he said, yeah, it's like $80,000. You may need to get a police officer to escort you to your car um, because there's a lot of money on this table. And, uh, you know, I said with a straight face, no smile. And I think he, he looked at me like for maybe five seconds and started to understand I was serious. Right. And then he looked at his wife and, uh, and they started to cry and they hugged each other. And that was a pretty special moment. What year and what year was that? This must have been maybe six or seven years ago. And now what's the estimated value would you put on that? Uh, that's got to be maybe three quarters of a million bucks. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Michael, we've got just a couple more minutes, but I do have a, a few questions uh, for you. We were talking off the air. Let's say I've got some autographs on recognized paper envelopes from the Hall of Fame, but I don't have providence. I don't have a COAs, certificates of authenticity. If I want to know the true values, whether I'm interested in just keeping them in my collection or one day I want to sell them, what's the best way to have those authenticated, to let, let the whole world know, not just me as the buyer, but let the whole world know these are legit, these are authenticated? How do you do that? You definitely need to have PSA authenticate the items because once they put their stamp of approval on it, uh, the buyers, all the buyers know that, well, this is legit, this is very credible, and we will pay top dollar for these items. The other thing that happens is when an item is uh, encapsulated or uh, by PSA is, um, especially with the cards, though, I, I guess with autographs too, but if they're encapsulated, uh, it helps preserve them from the elements, whether it's dust or their grandchild putting their sticky fingers on it. Um, so that's important. And me being the head appraiser for PSA, um, I also submit a lot of things to PSA for customers um, because they don't feel comfortable filling out the paperwork or they're confused on declared value. So I'm always happy to help people um, if they have cards or, or autographs that they want PSA to take a look at. 
So that really takes the subjectivity out of it and, and gives it some authority behind it because of PSA's recognition uh, in the industry. Two last questions for you. If I want to get into the hobby, and I've been a sports fan my whole life, but I just don't know where to begin. It's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. When you jump in, it's just overwhelming. When I got back into the hobby after 20 years being off, I studied the hobby, believe it or not, for almost a year just to figure out what's going on. What do you suggest if a father and son want to get into the hobby for the first time? How do you do so without just being so completely overwhelmed with what you're looking at? It's kind of like buying a stock. Buy what you know and buy what you like. So with the stock, it's like maybe you buy coffee every morning at Starbucks. Maybe you should, so maybe you should be taking a look at that stock. With this hobby, maybe you're a big Chicago White Sox fan and you went to a lot of games when you were a kid and you saw Harold Baines and you just fell in love with Harold Baines. Well, that's a pretty affordable card and autograph to collect. And so maybe you start there and then share your memories of Harold Baines with your son or, or, or with your daughter. Um, that's how I recommend, as opposed to just saying people on social media are buying John Morant. Let's do that. No, I'm also a big fan of not going where people are, meaning if the herd of sheep are all going for one player or one issue, uh, look elsewhere. There's plenty, there's plenty of things in this marketplace, uh, and not just players, but sports and items right? There's cards, there's photos, there's, there's jerseys, and the jerseys could be game-worn or not game-worn. There's footballs, there's advertising pieces, there's books. I mean, there's just so much stuff. But again, buy what you know and buy what you like. Um, and it's even more important if it's nostalgic, meaning you have sentimental value attached to it. And, and not to mention, not in the cards, uh, world, there's all these non-sports cards that have just taken off. When I say non-sports, non-traditional, not not hockey, basketball, soccer, baseball, football, but wrestling, Formula One, Star Wars, Pokemon. It's incredible what's out there these days. I saw a Mike Tyson, um, a Vander Holyfield. I don't know if it's a photo or if it was actually a card that some manufacturer put out but they were both, it was autographed and they were asking these astronomical, but somebody out there, it means something to them and they will pay for it. Absolutely. People are looking to buy anything. There's so much demand. There's so many eyeballs. Um, but this is a fun, this is a fun hobby. This is a fun industry. Um, and you don't have to spend a lot of money to have fun. Yeah. Or you could spend all the money in the world and still have fun or not. But last question for you. I did some stalking on your website. And I saw some awesome photos of you with Hall of Famers. Talk about meeting Walter Payton. Walter Payton was the first professional athlete that I ever met in 1994. <laughs> yeah, I was such a, a little kid back then. But I do remember the conversation and I do remember how he treated me. Um, he was just the nicest guy, happy, always smiling, telling jokes. Um, and just loving life. And um, that's that's a memory that I'll never forget. Um, not only because he was my first athlete that I ever met, but just his positivity and always smiling. And he signed a couple footballs for me, uh, which I'll never sell. 
someone could offer me a hundred grand and uh, I'm telling you, I will not sell those Walter Payton signed footballs. Kind of like the Babe Ruth autograph story. That's, that's, that's what I love about this hobby are the backstories. How did X collectible come into your collection? And those are the best stories. I have one quick anti-Johnny Bench story. And this may not be a very popular one. Um, I'm from South Alabama, originally Dothan, near Tallahassee, Florida. So we had proximity-wise, we could drive to spring training games. I have two younger brothers and we load up in our van every spring. We would go down for games and we were in between the doubleheader. The big red machine had already played. Uh, the, the starters had already played their part of the first game. We were in between games and we were standing on the field that separated the game field from some of the practice field. Great spot to get autographs. I'm probably 10, 11 years old, maybe. And my brothers are younger. And we've got uh, paper and balls, you know, just getting autographs. Morgan, Rose, and Bench are all walking together. And we're just begging for autographs like the other kids were near us. Rose comes over, no problem. Signs, how you doing, kid, all that good stuff. Morgan, same thing. I had seen Johnny Bench sign autographs. Now, growing up, I, and I still am a big Thurman Munson fan, but I didn't let that, I wasn't wearing Yankee things because my dad, dad said, you can't wear any other teams if you're going to go to, you know, see the Reds. You can't wear Phillies. Anyway, Bench is signing and he gets to right where we are and he just walks away. And we're just like, come on, man, you're right here. He didn't look at us, didn't say a word. I don't know if it's having a bad day, but this was the great, the great thing. Joe Morgan turns around as they're walking away, just goes like this. Like, I can't explain it. It is what it is. Anyway, I've never collected Johnny Bench cards. I love Pete Rose and, and Joe Morgan cards as a result. But everybody has those awesome stories. So thank you for, for spending some time with us, Michael, today. Thank you. It was fun. And thank you for sharing that Johnny Bench story. Yeah, he... I'm sure he's a lovely man, but just that moment he was done signing and just didn't have the time. But anyway, guys, I've had an awesome conversation. I could talk to Michael forever, but he's got places to be. We all have things to do today. Michael Osaki with Baseball in the Attic, and I put his website in our comments. And if you guys are on Clubhouse, Michael's always in our rooms, just giving so much value, so much great content uh, to the hobby. And I really appreciate your time today, Michael. Thank you. You're very welcome. We'll see you soon. I hope so. And guys, that'll be, this is the end of another episode of Nomberg Law Live every Tuesday. Interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And Michael certainly fit that bill. Hope you guys have a safe rest of your week. See you next Tuesday.